you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. going on everybody this is wrong real episode 497 it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and today we are tackling one of the true icons of the golden age of hollywood the great betty davis and for this conversation returning for her fourth appearance we have gaming fanatic and pre-code hollywood buff amanda Kraftchik. and yeah you pitched this episode a while back i'm fired up to get into it i i I love golden age of hollywood and it's so rare that i find people who are willing to do the deep dive into the filmmakers and the and the stars, et cetera. So I'm intensely fired up for this conversation today. But how have you been? I have been very good. Thanks for having me back, James. Uh, yeah, I feel like the more of these episodes that are done, uh, it will interest more people in exploring and, and learning about these people and these movies as well. So that's kind of what I'm hoping. Well, I got a very nice comment about the Preston Sturgis up the other day where someone said, hey, you know, I've always wanted to check out Preston Sturgis. And this was the perfect little kind of guide to help me figure out what to watch. Yep. It's like, all right, it's not like they're saying, oh, my God, you're so amazing, blah, blah, blah. But they're like, <laughs> this is a useful contribution to film history. Now I can study Preston exactly. Sturgis for me. That that is that means mission accomplished. That was an awesome episode, by the way. Yeah, that was a, that was a really fun one. Yeah, John Lamadure, it was film baby is, film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he he yeah. he's a great dance partner for just about any topic. But <laughs> yeah, he was talking about Preston Sturgis months ago. I was like, you like Preston Sturgis? Like, all right, whether you like it or not, I'm roping you in for an episode because I've been wanting to do it for fucking years. But Betty Davis, she, uh, we are long overdue and tackling her as well. But before we get into her, just 
seismic, remarkable career. Yeah. I always relish talking to you a little bit about your gaming activities because there are not a lot of people who come on here who are gamers. And I know it's always a weird fit mixing like, yeah. you know, PlayStation and Xbox with like classic Hollywood cinema, but I don't care. It's my yeah. show and we're going to talk about it. So what <laughs> what have you been playing as of late? Um, Nothing all that new. I decided I should get back into uh, The Witcher 3. Um, I played it when it first came out. Not nearly enough. I can't remember what at the time was distracting me. And I didn't give a lot of the side quests the attention that they deserved. So I have decided to start from scratch. And um, that might not be the best idea in terms of my time. But uh, I love it. And uh, that yeah, so that's kind of where I've been. Um, otherwise, uh, on the Switch, I've been playing the uh, the Zelda game, that re-release of the uh, Game Boy game that came out. So that's kind gotcha. of kind well, of what I've been playing. I yeah. saw you tweeting earlier that the first game you ever cleared was Zelda Two: A Link to the Past, which yes. was a pretty fucking challenging game at the time. I remember a lot of people were complaining how much more difficult it was than the original Legend of Zelda, which was a total cultural phenomenon. But if you put in the hours, eventually Ganon was going to go down. And, but yeah. Link to the Past was a uh, kind of a meat grinder for a lot of people. Oh, I think you mean Adventure of Link, right? Yeah, that's that's the one. Uh, oh, Zelda Link to the Past is the uh, Super, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, whereas... Oh, you're right. Adventure of Link yeah. is the second one. Link to yeah, the Past... Yeah, this one's... Yeah, that, that that's a that's a little easier on the difficulty scale. I love <laughs> I loved all three, but yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, Adventure of Link because it was a side scroller and involved like action and yeah. reflexes. It required people to kind of completely rewire their brains. Whereas a Link to the Past yeah. was that great kind of overhead <clears throat> shot. It was a familiar format, even if there was more right. functionality and new tricks you could do and that sort of thing. Yeah, what was cool is um, just I'm, honestly, if you were to probably sit me in front of uh, Zelda 2 today, I doubt I would remember a lot of it and be able to beat it again. Like sometimes you have that memory with games and then sometimes it's like, you know, how did I do this? You know, so many years ago. Um, yeah, and the I cleared game is it back in like fifth grade or yeah. sixth grade, whenever the hell it came it's out. It's not easy. Yeah, yeah but I, I, was, I was so addicted to the franchise that I just like kept banging my head against the wall until I finally knocked that sucker yeah. down. But, but when getting back to The Witcher, it seems like the show on Netflix has helped a lot of people yeah. take a crack at Witcher 3 for the first time like obviously it was a, like one, a game of the year when it came out like in like 15 oh, yeah. or 16 but now totally that deserved. The Witcher was this runaway success story on Netflix people are like oh well shit maybe I should check out the game as well I mean yep. you mentioned the side quest what is your favorite strange cutscene that you've encountered because <laughs> as cool as the game is and as cool as the show is the game is willing to go to strange weird places that perhaps yeah. Netflix might be afraid to trod Ooh, yeah, definitely in terms of just, just I, arguably what they think is appropriate. Um, I'm, <laughs> no, I think we can file the game under inappropriate. Yeah, yes. Uh, gosh, you know, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you. So many of them are strange. I just, I think it's just um, a big part of it that I like with those cutscenes. It just reminds me of Mass Effect, if that makes sense. Just the way that the characters are and the the options. Like, you definitely have freedom, but kind of not really. Um, and uh, And obviously there's only a few directions it can go. Um, but those cutscenes, geez. Um. Yeah, it's fun. both in Mass Effect and in Witcher, you have to be very careful how you talk to your compatriots because there's a good chance yes. you're going to get to bone them, but you might end up having to fight them and kill them if you say the wrong things. So you got to yeah. play your cards very carefully. But yeah, for me, what really knocked my socks off was when this this elaborate scene on the back of a stuffed unicorn as Geralt and oh, Yennefer yes. are making love. And I was like, all right, this is this is new. I did not see this in either A Link to the Past yeah. or in Adventure of Link. <laughs> Skyrim even, yeah. Um, 
But uh, I just I'm somebody, too, that doesn't have a lot of patience sometimes when it comes to cut scenes. <laughs> and The Witcher's not good about that. So I will just fire away at the select button and then sometimes select things that I don't want to. Um, so hopefully I can restrain myself this time <laughs> as I keep going. Yeah, well, um, but yeah, for anybody awesome. out there yeah, who played who watched that show, definitely take a crack at Witcher 3. I mean, it's, you can play it on, on different difficulty levels. But it, yep. if you play it like on the second highest or the highest, it will challenge even the most rigorous gamer. But yeah, it gets my highest yep. possible recommendation as far as games are concerned it's awesome it has everything you'd kind of want from from a fantasy game uh, open world um just like i said the decision if you're familiar from with mass effect the decision making element to it it's the world is massive i mean especially I don't know. if you get the dlcs the dlcs are well worth a buy yeah. as well yeah yeah so i don't know i can't recommend it enough it's, it's just wonderful yeah i've been playing uh divinity original sin 2 on the mac as of late and i've been getting totally Ooh. addicted but that's a turn-based rpg it's basically like yes. if you took Baldur's gate 2 and injected with yep. steroids and updated it 20 years later it's yes. similar but god damn it's like if you like to play chess but you want to play chess in a really intricate rpg yeah. setting it, it, yeah. it gives you that kind of uh, thrill and excitement and I, i'm absolutely loving that that's wonderful. Um, I haven't played it, but I do have a friend that loves it. Um, RPG-wise, that's, that's something that I need to get back into, and I put down like a month or so ago was Persona 5. I don't know if you ever dug into that series. I um, Yeah, but it's got the, the turn-based uh, RPG battle style, but it also has like a social element to it because you're a kid in high school, and then you've got the uh, this dungeon-crawling element to it, and it's it's very dark, and it's it's got so many different things going on. It lasts forever. I mean, the game is hours and hours and hours long. Someone needs to create an MMORPG where you can explore classic yeah. Hollywood, where you can be like an extra yes. in the 30s and having like directors like drowning people. Yeah. And you're, you're running away from like Cecil B. DeMille, like accidentally killing yeah. extras or whatever the case might be. Or, <laughs> or like I'd be a huge fan or of you're that. being abused like in an Eric von Stroheim, like, you know, crazy, lavish, uh, <laughs> silent movie or something like that. But I feel like that would be an interesting world to explore. I feel like basically infused yeah. it with the flavor of Hollywood Babylon and just filled it with like drugs and murder <laughs> and sex and scandals and it oh, would be boy. awesome. I think the closest we've gotten to that is L.A. Noir, which Rockstar did, gosh, I feel like PS3, 360 era. And one of the, the cool things about that game is you're kind of in this very condensed small version of that part of L.A. And yep. uh, you go by the old and there's there's even, if I remember correctly, a few missions where you're on the old Intolerance set, which is really cool. So there definitely was a lot of the old Hollywood and, and the silent era Hollywood kind of injected in the game. But yeah, I can't remember if it was Hollywood and Vine. I think it's actually it's Hollywood and Highland where the old yep. intolerance set was where the giant elephants had been erected yeah. to represent Babylon. And yeah. for, apparently those el elephants stood there for years decaying and rotting before they finally <laughs> tore them down. But I think now that's where they erected the building where they host the Oscars each year. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is like the mall, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, now that we're on the subject of old school Hollywood, let's switch gears to the early 30s when we have the emergence of one of the most recognizable and beloved movie stars of all time. She was the first actress ever to get 10 Academy Award nominations for acting. Of course, that's been surpassed by other actors since then, but she won right. twice. And of all the big stars that Warner Brothers groomed in the 30s, I mean, obviously you can talk about Bogey, you can talk about a couple of different, you can talk about James Cagney, but Betty Davis is right there in the mix as one of the most recognizable mm -hmm. and she has so many kick-ass movies to, to discuss but you've picked out four for us today one of which I is did. one of my all-time favorite movies we could talk about it for like oh. for hours alone yes. but we're gonna try Same. and we're gonna try and stay focused but 
as someone who's from Massachusetts, and yeah. how did you first hear about or learn about the great Betty Davis? How did I first hear or learn about her? Okay, um, honestly, it's I can. It, this goes to I guess me thanking my parents for for kind of telling my brother and I when we were younger. You know what? We don't really like any of these newer movies. We don't feel that they're good for you. So why don't we explore the classics? And that's when we got into uh, Hell Roaches, our gang, the Little Rascals. Uh, we got into uh, Abbott and Costello, and I learned about Buster Keaton, and kind of we worked our way up. It was just something fun we used to do as a family. Um, and Betty Davis, I encountered, you know, the first thing my father said to me, oh, well, Betty Davis's eyes, obviously quoting the song. Um, but, uh, he said to me, oh, you know what? You're going to, you're going to love her. And, uh, I, if I remember correctly, I feel like the first movie I ever saw with her was, uh, the petrified forest, gotcha. um, which is a huge favorite of mine, I think, cause Leslie, uh, Howard's in it and uh, obviously a young Humphrey Bogart. And uh, if you're familiar with that movie, it just takes place in this like claustrophobic, totally claustrophobic like set um, in the middle of that uh, petrified forest, which I think is supposed to be Arizona, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's obviously in a studio set and it's she's very young and is clearly not what she's going to become later on in terms of the character she plays. Yeah. She's kind of more of an ingenue in that. Well, that's what's so much fun about her yeah. career is like in the 30s, she was this angel with these giant mm -hmm. eyes and this yeah. like electric intensity and whether you're seeing her in something like 20,000 years in Sing Sing or Kid yeah. Galahad like she had a, like a lot of movies where she was off to the side for a while before she really emerged as this giant Oscar contender year after year because she, she won this hot streak in the late 30s where she just kept getting nominated one movie after another but it's incredible yeah. seeing how different she was in the 30s to the hag persona that she totally leaned into and embraced <laughs> in the 60s because a lot of yeah. actresses will try to disguise their age or hide their age or you know wear fake boobs whatever the case may be like like in the case of Joan Crawford and whatever happened to baby Jane but Betty Davis <laughs> yes. is like no I am a gargoyle and I'm terrifying I'm just gonna lean into it totally and it makes it. those later roles absolutely riveting and delightful to, to behold because yeah. she just allowed herself to transform into something quite new. And some people say that she actually single-handedly launched the hag horror subgenre. Right. Kevin Marr would know better than anybody, but I know he's had a couple of uh, presentations <laughs> about hag horror in the past. Yeah. Um, I feel like, regard, like regardless of the era, I mean, I feel like she was, I mean, I mean, close to 60 years that she was acting. I mean, obviously there were a few periods here and there where she was a little removed from it for different reasons. But um, she, just, just seeing her evolve and change as it goes on, I mean, obviously for the different studios, she dealt with and what was going on in her life, I feel like she kind of always had this great understanding of who she is. Um, and I think that kind of totally came through with her performances and obviously led to her fighting with most of the directors she worked with. But Well, some would say fighting, but for her, it sounded like she just loved a really helping. strong give and take. She liked really dynamic directors and she liked yes. challenging them and question, making them question their assumptions. And William Wyler yeah. was a great partner in crime for her because she had the utmost respect for him and she enjoyed fighting with him and he kind of enjoyed fighting with her and they were lovers for a while. And so I think yeah. she did, I mean, well, uh, we'll get to it later on, but she has this quote sure. about how she found so many different, um, actually, well, I've got it right here in front of me right now, so I'll go ahead and read it right now. But apparently um, on the film, The Letter, she said, I did it his way. Yes, I lost a battle, but I lost 
lost it to a genius. So many directors were such weak sisters that I would have to take over. <laughs> Uncreative, unsure of themselves, frightened to fight back. They offered me none of the security that this tyrant did. So I just love the fact that she's mm-hmm. talking, calling him a tyrant, but in a loving fashion, because apparently she was a ruthless perfectionist, <laughs> loved doing lots of takes, had this incredible work ethic. And so William Wyler is one of the few directors who could really handle her. Yeah, and and I think she like she knew immediately who those people were that were on her level. Um, I feel like and maybe that that might be why she she uh, didn't get along with John Crawford <laughs> and all the the famous uh, you know like basically just downright insults that she would throw at her. Which uh, I will yeah, get we'll get to, to all that. I mean, the, um, the, the battles <laughs> between Joan and Betty on whatever happened to Baby Jane. That is a podcast unto itself, and obviously they've made movies and shows about that that famous uh, that famous that rivalry. Yeah. But I mean, oh my God, some of the shit talking that went on this set. But we'll, we'll, I don't want to I don't want to um, okay. skip ahead too quickly because we've got a really really cool flick to start with. The first movie that you selected is from her early period where she was just getting nominated one movie after another, a Dark Victory. 1939, which I had never seen prior to preparing for this episode, but lay it on us. What is uh, what is Dark Victory? What are you trying to do, burn us up? Are you afraid to burn, Michael? Are you afraid to die? I wouldn't want to die while you're alive, Miss Judith. You're making love to me, aren't you? You invited me to talk to you as a man, didn't you? Yes. I'm as good as some of them that's been playing around with you. They're all afraid of you. Oh, I know, I've heard them talking. They'd go after you, but they're afraid of you. I wish to heaven I wasn't their boots. What then, Michael? Nights I've laid awake thinking of you. The things I've wanted to say to you ever since I first laid eyes on you. You're afraid. Is it because I'm a stable hand, is it? No, Michael, it isn't that. I just can't go on this way. this there's something else Michael I just can't die like this die yes I'm going to die in a few months Michael oh heaven forgive you for saying a thing like that yes heaven forgive me be met beautifully and finally. That's what he said. Oh, I'm all shot. Dark victory. Um, she is, Betty Davis is this Long Island uh, socialite and heiress. She loves cars. She loves horses. And then all of a sudden she, I think she falls off her horse, if you remember right. And, uh, she suffers from these headaches and all of a sudden it just hits her a little harder than normal, suffers from these dizziness and, and double vision. And she ends up seeing a, uh, a physician and uh, gets diagnosed uh, 
through, you know, a series of tests and everything uh, that with basically having a malignant brain tumor. And uh, he, uh, who he's in love with her and uh, friends and family make the decision. We're just going to hide it from her. We're not going to tell her. So that way she can live out, you know, the rest of her life, which he thinks she might just have a year, uh, you know, enjoying her life and being happy. And we're just going to pretend this doesn't exist. Uh, So that's kind of what kind of sets the whole groundwork for the movie. And then you kind of just you know, see as things unfold, what happens. Yeah, I mean, if somebody were to describe the premise to me in broad strokes, I would be like, you know what? I'm going to watch some of her other movies first, like movies yep. where she's, you know, raising hell on Broadway or murdering yep. her sister or whatever the case might be. But yeah. it's all about the execution, and they did a great job at this. I know this is one of her favorite roles, and seeing her hitting the cocktail parties and riding horses – well, you really yes. just get to, uh, to see her so full of life and so dynamic and just so the intensity that she has. I, she's right up there with like Catherine Hepburn at this point in terms of that yes. kind of uh, socialite. And I know a lot of people, yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it's horrible when people say that Betty Davis was, what was ugly or whatever. It's like they clearly have not seen any of her movies from the 30s. Cause I think she's strikingly beautiful. Yes. But, it's a really, but it's a really unconventional look. But I think mm-hmm. unconventional beauties oftentimes surpass the quote unquote kind of standard beauty. Absolutely. She totally stands out from, from however, you know, Hollywood, it was at the 20s, the 30s, the 40s were making all of their actresses look like basically identical in a lot of cases. Yeah, she buries Jean Harlow for me. And Jean Harlow oh, was like a big yes. sex kitten, but I'd much yes. rather spend time around Betty Davis. Yeah, just for her personality alone. I mean, you know, the, the beauty eventually is going to fade away, right? So you got to have somebody who's interesting. So I, that's definitely, you know, where she is as a person. She's just always feisty. I mean, honestly, she's, she's how short? And maybe five foot five? I mean, she oh, looks no, she, like I looked she her, could... she's five foot three. She's a, she's a little lady. Okay, five foot three? Yeah. All right. Well, then, you know, she she looks like she owns every single room she's in. I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely that element to her too just her personality um just that just even brings out her her unique look that uh, nobody else in hollywood had and it's those eyes i think they said yeah. nowadays she might have been diagnosed with graves disease if i remember correctly um <laughs> or it looks like she might have had that yeah so i mean it is possible but, but every uh, era's got actresses with giant yeah. eyes where people are like whoa you got some big you got, you got some big ass eyes but it makes her so <laughs> incredibly expressive and whether she's right. sitting totally still or staring like staring holes in somebody those you can just you can stare at those eyes forever but i, I love her like her accent in this and i love how she's able to yeah. switch gears and like play southerners in one movie and kind of yankee socialites and other ones she just she's yeah. a, such a uh flexible actress i guess the one person in this movie whose accent i did not like was Bogey, who obviously I love Bogey. He's one of my all-time favorites, but he's kind of yes. doing this strange, like stable boy Irish accent that for yeah, me I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. doesn't work at all. Like it's really distracting as hell. Yeah, I always found myself just kind of laughing when he he would talk to her. If she was in a stable briefly, or when she's leaning out the window, kind of telling him something. Or it's kind of like a Ronald Reagan that I didn't realize until I just rewatched it that he has these very small roles in it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's the same thing. It's just you know unintentionally funny. I mean, Ronald Reagan was way. never bigger than like a B movie star, but I guess at right. this point in his career, like he and Bogey might have been on roughly the same playing, uh, same level. But I feel like already Bogey's. I mean, four years later, he's going to be in Casablanca, and like two years later, yes. he's going to be in things like High Sierra and yes. uh, Maltese Falcon. So he's right on the cusp of exploding. Because even when they made uh, Roaring Twenties in the same year, Raul Walsh's film, he was still playing second fiddle to James Cagney. So yeah, this is yep. right as Bogey's about to pop and become an icon, mm-hmm. but he's not quite there yet. 
Yep. Yep. Um, and I think too, going back to, uh, Betty Davis, uh, with, uh, how she's, uh, has that Yankee, uh, easy to personify a Yankee. I mean, it's because she is, I know you mentioned I'm from Massachusetts. She was born in, in Lowell, I believe Massachusetts, which is, I don't know, I think like roughly 25 miles away from Boston-ish. It's north yeah, it's of Boston. Yeah, it's where the fighter takes place. It's, uh, yep. yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. That, that's all yeah. I know about Lowell. I can't remember the name of the boxer <laughs> that Mark Wahlberg and uh, oh, yeah. and Christian Bale really are too. portraying those two boxers, but those two brothers, yeah. but yeah, Lowell, Massachusetts. I'm under, my understanding yeah. is that it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a rough old town. It. Yeah, it is a rough old town. Supposedly it's better um, now, but um, anyways, it's also close to uh, the border in New Hampshire, um, so it's kind of close to, to Nashua. You could probably hop in your car and get there pretty quickly. Um, so that's, that's the thing with, uh, with Betty is she's obviously from New England. She actually has at some point a, a home in New Hampshire. I think it's called Butternut. Um, so it's kind of these things that, and she loved Maine, going to Maine with her family on vacations. Uh, she was in New York a lot. So I think it's kind of, you know, it's easy for her to play this type of, of character in that regard where she, she does enjoy these things because she has her vacation home in this. Um, I think it's in Vermont in this movie. Um, so she's kind of has that, that similar, you know, vacation home, uh, that turns into her home type of thing. So she's kind of familiar with these areas and, and does enjoy New England. Yeah. I mean, she's perfectly cast. The movie went on to become a monster hit and it was her biggest moneymaker up to that point. Uh, but there's something about this movie where like the, from the moment it started, Every time I revisit Warner Brothers movies in the 30s and early 40s, you're just like, ah, it's like pulling up a chair yeah. and it's a warm fire. And you see the logo, the logo and you hear yep. a Max Steiner score. Something about the Warner Brothers logo and a Max Steiner score, you're like, fuck yes. Because usually that means, yeah. all right, I'm going to get some hard hitting, kind of gritty realism. I'm going to see James Cagney like smacking people in the face or Bogey smacking people in the face. But obviously this is a yeah. slightly different style of story. But Max Steiner, he, he lets it all hang out. But apparently... Betty Davis had this, I mean, Betty Davis, she's got profound creative instincts, but she wasn't afraid yes. to throw her weight around the set. And apparently there was a bit of drama on the set at one day where she was about to do the scene walking up the stairs where she's gone blind due to the brain tumor. It's toward the end of the mm -hmm. movie. And she mm -hmm. stopped and she talked to the director and said, Ed, is Max Steiner going to be composing the music score to this picture? And he's like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. She said, well, either I'm going to climb those stairs or Max Steiner's going to climb those stairs. But I'll be goddamned oh. if Max Steiner and I are going to climb those <laughs> stairs together. But I love how she recognizes that sometimes music <laughs> is overused to sell a scene. And sometimes all you need is just a really brilliant actress to walk up the stairs. You don't need Max Steiner kind of carrying her up. Yes, um, I absolutely agree. And it's funny. I thought that, you know, he, he should have won for, for best score. It's just me. I believe this was nominated. I mean, it's another conversation of the Academy Awards, you know, doing a great job of, I'm saying this sarcastically, picking people and picking winners. Um, but I think he lost to, who did the Wizard of Oz score? Was it Herbert? Ooh, Stoke? I, I do not know. I haven't watched the Wizard of Oz in like 15 years, and I'm embarrassed I'm not even necessarily the world's biggest, um, I guess, uh, I guess trivia buff when it comes to The Wizard of Oz, so I really yeah. have no clue. Hang on, let me do a quick okay. IMDb Just, hunt. I mean, I'll take Wizard of Oz over Gone with the Wind any day. Oh. Yeah, I, and it's funny, I'm from the yeah. South, but it, when it comes to Southern movies, I'd much rather watch like Smokey and the Bandit than uh, yes. <laughs> something yeah. like that. That actually feels like it's from made by people from the South who like the South. What the? God, there's so many fucking people on the crew for uh, Gone with uh, for Wizard of Oz, I came and find the music department. What in mm. the fuck? Um, yeah, I'm, there's like a all right, Har Harold Arlen. Okay. 
who I'm Thank unfamiliar you. with. But I guess when it comes to this era, like Dmitry Tiomkin was one of the big ones, obviously, and Bernard Herman's one of the big ones, only starting in 1941. Yeah. But Max Steiner's one of those guys where he's so iconic and he's on so many incredible movies and like you cannot separate Max Steiner from Warner Brothers. I don't place him at the level of someone like Bernard Herman, but I wouldn't want to live in a world without Max Steiner. So I get if Max Steiner... If he lost from time to time because he was incredible at what he did, but I he's like almost like the Hans Zimmer of his era, where you kind of know what you're gonna yeah. get going into it. Yeah, because um, I know he did King Kong. Uh, I think he did Casablanca. Um, I mean, so just just thinking about that and then remembering those movies, and all, the first thing I hear is the music. Absolutely. So I think that kind of it kind of says everything. Um, but uh, you know, back to Dark Victory. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, her with her blindness, um, that kind of just, if you really, I mean, at least for me, when I'm, I'm watching her, uh, kind of, kind of show that, that change. Cause she's warned by, uh, now her husband, the physician, I think it's, uh, George Brent. Um, she's warned by him, uh, that, you know, when, when it, you're closer to, you know, this, this tumor, you know, killing him when she finds out she eventually learns what, what, what she has. Yeah, she goes to the mail and she's like, what does yeah. prognosis mean? What does yeah. negative mean? And they're all like, yeah. uh, <laughs> and the one girl yeah. accidentally gives it away because she doesn't know what the letters are in reference to. Yeah. But, um, when she's now at the, you know, the end of the movie and she's, she's acting out those, those final phases until, you know, all turns black, uh, which is a great ending, by the way. I love how they did that. Um, she it, it's it's got to be how hard is that to do like to try to be blind like that with your eyes open and somehow move around and, and not you know make eye contact with any of the other actors on the set like that that's kind of incredible what she does if yeah it's, i've heard a great trick is for someone to have like something to look at like mm -hmm. off screen that you can focus mm -hmm. on Otherwise, right. it's just you, you inevitably, your eyes, you can't help it. They're going to follow the eyes of the They're other gonna, people. Right. But yeah. yeah. But I love this scene where she's outside and she thinks it's getting cloudy and she thinks it's about to rain. But she's like, but it's interesting. I still feel the sun in my hands. And that's when you realize, oh, okay, yeah. well, she, she's, uh, the vision is fading fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you mentioned uh, George Brent. Betty Davis was not afraid to have the occasional love affair, and she married frequently and passionately yeah. and had many, 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 many lovers. But George Brent was also, um, apparently she had a nervous breakdown during the filming because her marriage with Harmon Nelson crumbled, but George Brent filled the void, gave her some, uh, some rebound sex to uh, help her get through this tough patch. <laughs> I feel like that can be said, like you said, about a lot of, of people that she worked with. Um, there's a there's several directors as well, like William Wyler. Yeah, there's, um, there's certain actresses where if they're going to work with a director, they kind of enjoy having that intimacy. Right. Like uh, Natasha Kinski in the 70s and 80s was notorious for that. And apparently she really was frustrated when she was working with Paul Schrader and he wouldn't have sex with her when they're making cat people. She's like, well, how am I even going to have a conversation with you if we're, if we're not fucking on the side? But yeah, everybody's got their own process yeah. for collaborating. Yeah. And I think if he, I think he was also in the old maid with uh, Betty Davis, where I know she, you know, starred with I uh, was at Miriam Hopkins, and I know they they absolutely didn't like each other at all either. Um, 
And there's plenty of good stories, I think, with the two of them on set yelling at each other, calling each other bitch and everything, which is wonderful. I mean, it's a shame that back in the day they didn't do like behind the scenes, like YouTube videos and like DVD extra features, because I imagine seeing Betty Davis cutting loose behind the scenes would have been more, (laughs) probably even more interesting than the movies themselves. We probably get a little taste of it with the character of Margot when she's having like one of her meltdowns in All About Eve, where it's like, all right, you're really getting to see an epic temper tantrum where she's sharpening her teeth on the people around her. But it's awesome on the stage, but it's less attractive when it's uh, just you know at a cocktail party and that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, I I would I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of one of Betty Davis's tantrums, but I would love no. to uh, love to witness one. Oh yeah, I'd love to be in the room. Absolutely. Now, um, from, now from ahead. this era, are there any other flicks of hers like Jezebel or anything like that that you really respond to? Because this is definitely her first big prime period. Some can even argue that this is her her golden age in terms of yeah. like just cranking out so many big movies in a row from like here all the way up through like I guess like Little Foxes and things like that. But right. what are your personal faves from this period? From this period, and this is arguably the greatest year in film history still, 1939. Uh, yeah. That's tough. Yeah, I mean, you've got um, Rules of the Game. You've got fucking Stagecoach. You've got uh, Only Angels Have Wings. I mean, you've got yeah. a ton of cool stuff coming out. 1939, I, I wrote a post about it years ago. Early in, in early days of Wrong Reel, I did a post about my favorite movies in 1939. And it's definitely yep. one of those years, like 1971, where like, oh, my fucking God, there's like 100 amazing it's, movies in this period. Um, so I'm trying to think what else did I love her with in the even in the 30s uh, pre-code I love uh, three on a match what I think I, I mentioned briefly with you on one of the pre-code episodes we did um, that's wonderful um, and that she's opposite Joan Blondell uh, Warren Williams in it uh, and Dvorak's in it um, 30s I love uh, of human bondage which is kind of I think really the movie that really first set her off uh, gotcha. in terms of, of popularity in her career um, what about I Hell's that House? That sounds very uh, tantalizing. Yeah, I, honestly, I don't think I've seen Hell's House. Yeah, have another, you seen it? I have not. It's yeah. another pre-code, There's 1932, so but it's about bootlegging, yeah. and it's got a great title, oh. so uh, yeah, it sounds I'm like it, it could be good. Yeah, I'm trying to think of Human Bondage is great. Uh, Leslie Howard's also in that. Um she there's there's this wonderfully I think when you when you watch the movie there's this it's iconic this scene or it should be if it isn't with just how she just unloads on him um, and just this this kind of breakdown that she has which is wonderful um, and uh, petrified forest I mentioned too I absolutely love from this period I don't think that gets enough love absolutely um, that's uh, Archie Mayo so yeah so. Well, maybe that's as good a time as any then to dive into one of what I know is one of your personal favorites just from looking at your Twitter profile, but the letter from 
I met him, I hated myself. And yet I lived for the moment when I'd see him again. You've been watching me all evening. I'm responsible for you. Because I'm so... so evil. Let's talk about the letter. It's interesting, a couple of episodes ago, I was talking about how this podcast had been totally neglecting William Wyler, but we finally got a chance to discuss him when we are tackling uh, Judge Roy Bean with the film The Westerner. But here we are, William Wyler again, 1940. So uh, almost by accident, we're starting to celebrate Mr. William Wyler on a regular basis. But the letter is based on a play by uh, W. Somerset Mom. Mom, I never quite know how to pronounce that last name, but I, he wrote the novel Razor's Edge, which I absolutely loved. But the screenplay is by Howard Koch. He is just an absolute legend. Like the little War of the Worlds broadcast that Orson Welles did that made him famous. Well, Howard Koch was the writer, and he also wrote a little movie called Casablanca that people might have heard of, and like Letter from an <laughs> Unknown Woman, and Sergeant York, and the Seahawk. I mean, he is a true legendary writer who also got blacklisted a uh, short time after. Mm. In the late 40s and the early 50s, but here we are with the let with the letter with him adapting this play. But lay it on us. I know that you uh, this one's one of your personal faves. So what is it with the letter that really jumps out at you? Honestly, um, it just is the very first scene is initially what did it for me. Uh, I feel like it has one of those very memorable opening scenes to a movie. Um, easily one of my all-time favorites. Um, I think everybody uh, would agree there's something special about it. It was like uh, Godard, he once it. said, all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun. Boom, there yeah. it is. <laughs> and there it is, exactly. So you're on this like rubber plantation um, in Singapore, and it kind of, the camera, just the way that it transitions and moves, and all of a sudden you hear noise, like there's a struggle, and it moves right to uh, these steps that go into the the plantation home, and this this beautiful woman, you can barely see her, just kind of with a lot of courage and, and clearly something has happened that has ticked her off. She just <laughs> unfolds on somebody <laughs> and does it very majestically the way she rocks down the stairs. And, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's your opening. And it's, it's just kind of initially took me by surprise and it still kind of does when I rewatch it. Cause just the presence she yeah. has. And Betty just Davis this, said that opening scene was one of the, uh, was one of the finest scenes she'd ever seen in oh. any movie, not to mention just her own movies, but she loved the yeah. film, but she really yeah. loved that opening scene. So it's really that scene that does it for me. And then it kind of just, just, you know, holds my attention for the, just the rest of the movie, the way that her character is and, you know, how she initially explains what happens and the way she does that. And then just how it kind of unfolds uh, with an actual, uh, you know, appearance of a letter that kind of uh, totally proves that she's nothing but a liar. Um, and you know, spoilers, we came out a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, the movie came out 80 (laughs) years ago, so I'm not really that worried about spoilers, (laughs) But it's a, I love movies that are about the bad guy. And this is uh, – she's not necessarily the world's nicest person in this. And not only 
did she not get kind of abused and pushed around by this guy that she claimed came over and tried to force himself on her, but she basically demanded that he come over and like threatened him if he didn't come over because she'd been in love with him for years. And not only yeah. was she in love with him for years and not only did she kill him when he threatened to leave her for another woman, but even after he's dead, she's still in love with him. <laughs> she she yeah, can't let it go. She, she can't let it go. I mean, she's and Herbert Marshall, her husband, you know, he loves her and he's really one of the probably out of every victim in a situation, um, almost equal to the man that she gunned down because he's, you know, he's honestly a little too forgiving. He's so gullible and soft. Yeah, like when you think and, Herbert Marshall, like I always think of uh, Trouble in Paradise, like the Ernest Lucas uh, film where he's so razor sharp and so witty and yeah. so clear. It almost kind of threw me seeing him in a movie like this where he just plays like the cuckold. He's been being cheated on for years. Mm-hmm. She's bleeding him dry in order to bribe this woman for to get that letter off of her hands. And he just is kind of a ruined man by the end. But he's yeah. not necessarily the most discerning or critical or observant individual. So he's almost, you could say, he, a sucker's born every minute and he's kind of got it coming. <laughs> yeah, he kind of did. But it's still, it's just, it's like you said, she's still in love with the man she killed because, you know, we're, we're closer now, I think, towards the, the end of the movie. And she he's, you know, forgiving her again. And, and especially after, you know, what, what he learned that, you know, she did kill him in cold blood. And, you know, she's crying and upset and, and just flat out yells at him and admits that she can't, you know, try to make it work with him after this has happened. She still loves him. And that what's great about that is the beginning of the movie. You just kind of see this transition from him thinking that she's this, you know, poor, innocent woman where she's she tells the British police and him in the beginning, oh, he he tried to make love to me. You know, so then I guess that was the reason why she shot him like how many times? <laughs> yeah. I mean, back in 1940, they were like, he fucking raped me or did like that. Yeah. So yeah. He was yeah. trying to make love to me. Like, but I love watching her reactions, though, when the cop yeah. at the table starts to talk about how most likely she's going to have to be arrested and also the most likely right. she'll have to be charged with murder. And she gets right. so incredibly still and attentive as she's listening mm-hmm. to him. And I've never seen an actress kind of exude so much intensity while being remaining totally motionless. Still. But she's, yeah. yeah, she's really, I mean, because her story's got a lot of holes in it and she's trying to keep a, her lie intact. Mm-hmm. But watching mm-hmm. her try to throw up a lot of smoke screens and protect her reputation and, and all the different stories and lies that she continues to spin, it's an absolutely exquisite performance. And we're almost in like full-blown film noir territory, but obviously film noir came yes. a little later and they tended to be yeah. much more inexpensive movies. This is obviously a big, right. lavish Hollywood production. They're recreating mm-hmm. Singapore. It's incredibly yeah. exotic. And I always love these kind of backlot exotic locales where you feel like you're exploring mm-hmm. another universe, but it's just totally made out of cardboard cardboard and paper mache. It's just Hollywood fantasy, but they really do create this <coughs> wonderfully atmospheric and exotic environment where the widow of the man she killed, she's almost as like terrifying as like a James Bond villain. It's like Dr. No, but like 21 years yeah. earlier. <laughs> Yeah, they unfairly make her seem like this this villain. I mean, I, at first, I mean, you're, you know, you you might be able to understand that, I guess. But you know, as you slowly learn how evil Betty Davis's character really is, I mean, it just just totally turns on itself. So I just kind of found that interesting that they they kind of made her appear that way. I mean, I know she ended up selling this this love letter. Um, to her husband for $10,000, which like I, I checked uh, for inflation what that would be today. That's at a zero. So, oh, like, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so that, that cost her, you know, in today's dollars, I would have cost her uh, $100,000 for this letter where they're just basically saying, oh, hey, come over, you know, again. And um, 
And so, so it's kind of, you know, that's, I found that interesting that they kind of portrayed her a little more villainous. I, I mean, it might also have to do with, um, I know the production code administration like initially rejected uh, the original story adaptation that uh, Warner Brothers did submit on the grounds that it contained adultery and uh, an unpunished murder. In the play, she gets away with it, whereas in the movie, yep. at the end, they gank her. And yeah, cr- yeah. criminality must be punished. In, in the Hollywood Golden Age, moving forward after 1934, criminality must be punished. Even if it's a James Cagney yes. movie or whatever the case may be, in the end, you, you got to yeah. go down in flames. you got to kill your villains, right. But, um, but for an era of filmmaking where there weren't necessarily a lot of great parts floating around for, for Asian actors, this movie actually does have one really cool part where you have the clerk for the lawyer who's so like calm and quiet and professional and unassuming. However... He's a total schemer and a grifter, and he's trying to get in on the action, but he does it like in the most polite, humble way possible, but he's yeah. incredibly clever, and I love seeing how he negotiates the sale of this letter and how he divulges that he's going to be part of the process, but I thought he was a really interesting character. Oh, he was wonderful because he just, you know, came off as you would want a, a lawyer's clerk to come off. Like he just has it down with the whole niceties and then ultimately, you know, throwing in there, you know, kind of the, the, that catch that, you know, I have you there. There's a letter. I just love that the way that it kind of unfolds with his conversations that he has. Um, isn't that Sen Young? I think that's the name of the actor. I know he does Charlie Chan in Honolulu, I think. Think. Let's see. Um, Victor Sen just, Young plays uh, Ung Chi Seng as Sen. Yeah, so in the credits he's as Sen Young, yeah. but his full name is Victor yeah. Sen Young on IMDb. Yeah, so he's actually. Um, I mean, who's the who's the actress that played uh, the the widow? Mrs. Hammond. Um, that is Gail Sondergaard, and she is not Asian. Not Asian. She is from yeah, Litchfield, exactly. Minnesota. <laughs> exactly. I just want to throw that in there. So. You know, we have another example of uh, somebody in Hollywood, I guess, you know, not being uh, portrayed the way they should be and, and vice versa. Um, but, you know, for, for 1940, she, like you said, she does do a, a wonderful job as more of this villainous figure. I guess it's, you know, the more I think about it from the perspective of Betty Davis, how Betty Davis would view the widow of the man that she killed and that she loved. She would view her in, in that light. I mean, like she an adversary. is. And she makes her kind of humble right. herself by dropping yeah. the letter on the ground and making her kind of bend down and get down on her hands and knees to pick up the letter to make sure that she's kind of debasing herself first right she's kind of putting her in her place you know ultimately so and and i think i've always took it at the with the ending with the the knife that went missing as as it being as it being the widow that that got revenge um i I don't know how how you took that i think that's kind of what it what it kind of signified at the end there the way that uh the murderer was ultimately killed betty davis well this movie had a lot of chaos going on behind the scenes. Some good, some bad, but obviously, as I mentioned before, William Wyler and Betty Davis were having some famous brawls about how to read lines and how to say lines, whether to make eye contact, not make eye contact. Right. She's talking about how she's still in love with the man that she killed. But it sounds like they had a, a, a fine time as well because uh, William Wyler and Betty Davis, they were having an affair while shooting this film. This was their third film yeah. they did together, and he was married yeah. to another woman, and Betty Davis discovered that she was pregnant while making this movie, yeah. and she... Yeah. But apparently, she wasn't entirely sure who the father <laughs> might be, and so she me. kept it a secret <laughs> and arranged for an abortion, which apparently was her third abortion, at least that that we know of. And that we uh, know of, right. but yeah, but years later, she admitted she told her friends, "I should have married Willie." So I think William Wyler really got to her, had a special place in her heart. 
And she regretted it later on that she wasn't able to lock it down. But at the bare minimum, they made a lot of good movies together. Yeah, especially Jezebel, which I think we, we briefly mentioned. Um, I have to th- that would be another one I would absolutely suggest if you're kind of generally just starting to get into Betty Davis, especially in this period. Um, yeah, one that I've always wanted to watch that I've not seen yet is the the Little Foxes. Yet another William Wyler, which they made the following year. How, how's that one? It's really good. Um, I especially love uh, her character in it. Um, I think, honestly, I think kind of the way that she just. It's more it's more of like this kind of villainous approach, if I remember correctly. Uh, so she's kind of has. I know that, she goes that, full full southerner in it, and so I always want to. Yeah. Uh, I'm always curious about stories set in the South. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of it works very well with uh, with Jezebel. Obviously, do it as a double feature because uh, she's the Southern Belle on that as well. Um, although the character is a little different, she definitely has that that total. A kind of like almost villainous vibe to her in it. Yeah, I saw Jezebel years ago, but I was in a state of altered consciousness. And so uh, <laughs> I don't completely remember all the details, but I remember just thinking, all right, it was fucking Henry Fonda and Betty Davis and William Wyler. I've got to, uh, I've got to give this one a go. And uh, yeah, I wish I could remember anything. I just remember like certain like images, but yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, the, it's, it's been a good 20 years or more since I've seen it. So my memories are very vague, but it's got a stunning poster that I'm looking at right now on IMDb. So just uh, at a bare minimum, check out the poster for Jezebel. It's totally badass. Yeah, I'm sure Tony Stella would approve its beautiful hand-drawn illustration. None of these floating heads (laughs) from Photoshop and that sort of thing. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, those are awful. Well, let's dive into All About Eve because All About Eve could very easily derail this episode and take up a, a disproportionate amount of time because I think All About Eve is one of the best movies ever made and it's got oh, it is. so many incredible performances. One of my favorite screenplays of all time. So many, I mean, Addison DeWitt's one of my all-time favorite characters in any movie made anywhere mm-hmm. at any time. And of course, we've got fucking Betty Davis as Margot just chewing the scenery in each and every scene. And yeah, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, he never quite could live this way. It's almost like he became a victim of his own success because the movie's too good. And no matter what you do before yeah. or after, it's always going to be measured against All About Eve. But I think when it comes to movies about showbiz, in this case, theater, this yes. is in the mix as arguably the best, but it's certainly one of the best by far. I've seen it four or five times and I have to like I stand in front of the TV with a big grin on my face shrieking Mm -hmm. with laughter every time I fucking see it and I think I liked it even more this time in preparation for this episode than in the the previous times I saw it yeah I'm the same way I just I think if you know somebody you know I've had family I've had friends around me watching this and they just don't understand how how involved I am and how much I love it and just I basically just enjoy and laugh almost the entire time and I feel like every time I rewatch this there's something new I get out of it because the dialogue is just just outrageous and it's wonderful and it's complex and there's so many different jokes and insults that are kind of just laced throughout it so it's kind of like every time I watch it is a totally new experience for me the kid a junior that is will be down in a minute unless you'd like to take her drink up to her I can get a fresh one Karen you're a Gibson girl Thank you. the general atmosphere is very Macbethish what has or is about to happen? What is he talking about? Macbeth. We know you. We've seen you like this before. Is it over or is it just beginning? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Oui, c'est quelque chose de 
plus Mademoiselle, je vous remercie infiniment pour l'invitation. to you too. I distinctly remember Addison crossing you off my guest list. What are you doing here? Dear Margot, you are an unforgettable Peter Pan. You must pray it again soon. Uh, you remember Miss Caswell, don't you? I do not. How do you do? We've never met. Maybe that's why. Miss Caswell is an actress, a graduate of the Copacabana School of Dramatic Art. Ah, Eve. Good evening, Mr. DeWitt. I had no idea you two knew each other. This must be, at long last, our formal introduction. Until now, we've only met in passing. That's how you met me, in passing. Yes. Eve, this is an old friend of Mr. DeWitt's mother, Miss Caswell, Miss Harrington. Miss Caswell, how do you do? Addison, I've been wanting you to meet Eve for the longest time. It could only have been your natural timidity that kept you from mentioning it. You've heard of her great interest in the theater. We have that in common. Then you two must have a long talk. I'm afraid Mr. DeWitt would find me boring before too long. You won't bore him, honey. You won't even get a chance to talk. Claudia, come here. You see that man? That's Max Fabian, the producer. Now go and do yourself some good. Why do they always look like unhappy rabbits? Because that's what they are. Now go and make him happy. Now, don't worry about your little charge. She'll be in safe hands. Yeah, I was shamelessly uh, copying and pasting because uh, obviously on IMDb they've got like trivia and they've got dialogue yeah. and so on and so forth. And I kept copying yeah. and pasting certain scenes that I was like, but it, as, when we do this episode, <laughs> I can't just reread half the goddamn screenplay. But I've got yeah. so many scenes in full yeah. that I'm just gonna yeah. I'm gonna cut in a couple just because hearing that malevolent purr by George Sanders as Addison DeWitt oh, just perfect. makes me smile the world's biggest evil grin just little lines like during his intro yeah. and he's like to those of you who do not read attend the theater listen to unsponsored <laughs> radio programs or know anything of the world in which you live it is perhaps necessary yeah. to introduce myself my name is Addison DeWitt my native habitat is the theater in it I toll not neither do I spin I'm a critic and commentator I'm essential yeah. to the theater like I would love to be able to say that about the movie biz or TV when it comes to like my podcast and my uh, YouTube channel. I've got mm. light years to travel before I can say anything along those lines. But for me, as someone who does uh, spends a lot of time commenting on t film and television, as in DeWitt is now my official role model for, for Wrong Real. <laughs> I think you're going to get there very soon. So absolutely take some tips from him. Well, apparently um, part of his secret <laughs> is that he was always asleep on the set and they would wake him up and he would kind of sleepwalk through a lot yep. of the takes. So just having that I don't give a fuck kind of half drunken yeah. drawl helped George Sanders appear like far more malevolent than he actually perhaps even intended to. But God damn, it says the performance of a lifetime. But in no way, shape, or form does it outshine and Baxter or Betty Davis or any of the other actors. But mm -hmm. it's like, I wish we had more scenes where Addison and Margot were kind of going head to head because they really only have like a few right. exchanges at the party. And I feel like that's maybe mm -hmm. like the one missed opportunity in this movie that we don't get to see these two volcanic personalities interact more frequently. It's like he kind of disappears a bit because he's uh, with Marilyn Monroe, very young Marilyn Monroe. Absolutely. Um, Before she started doing yeah. her voice. 
Exactly before she started doing her voice. Um, and, and I love there's there's a scene where he basically tells her to go get him at a party yeah. and kind of takes <laughs> off her coat and pushes her into it. And it's just I love that so much. And it, it's wonderful, too, because of just how a little bit prophetic it is, because that I think that's her very first appearance in, in, in movies, if, if I'm if I'm correct. This um, so kind of I think she did something with the Marx Brothers like a year or so beforehand. But the maybe the earliest thing I've seen her in was in uh, Asphalt Jungle, which came out, I think, okay. the, the same year. Hang on, let me whip out old Marilyn Monroe. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Only 33 credits. That's incredible. So first movie is Dangerous Years, 1947. But okay. the, A Love Happy is, I believe, the Marx Brothers flick. Yeah, that's from 1949 with all these great behind-the-scenes pics of Groucho interacting her with her. But yeah, and the scene where uh, she shows up at the party and he basically just sicks her on the pro- he basically sicks her yeah, on the producer to go off and so s- start carving out her career. But it's just, it's the it's the it's like the reverse casting couch like as Marilyn Monroe, Monroe yeah. pounces on him. <laughs> yeah, and then at that party, I mean, I, just so many details of this movie. How he's just well know. done. I can see your career rise in the east like the sun <laughs> after she kind of flirtatiously yeah. accepts a, a drink from the producer from Max Fabian. So yeah, just marvelous dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, it's all of them just kind of sitting on the stairs as the party's going on with, you know, Margot having another little breakdown. It's just the whole thing is just wonderful. It's just how all the characters are kind of interjected into it. Um, I mean, I, we could talk about so many different scenes. Uh, well, that scene in particular is so crucial because Margot, it's the first time she realizes that Eve, her ingenue or her, her understudy and her, an assistant, is this cunning, devious right. person who's yeah. studying her, wants to replace yeah. her, and basically wants to take everything she has, whether it's her lovers or her husband's or her career or her parts. But Eve right. wants everything that Margot has, and she's suddenly realizing it, and she's, she and Thelma Ritter are kind of the only two people who've seen Eve for what she is. And, right. But rather than kind of just firing her and getting rid of her she just decides to throw this epic shit fit and get totally hammered and everybody can see little bees yeah yeah everybody can see her kind of building toward this big spectacular melodramatic breakdown and once again that they they've seen it many times in the past and they love it on the stage they hate it when they are exposed to it in in real life but yeah margo's determined just to get it out of her system so yeah that that party scene is when the the movie really starts to find that special gear where it really starts surging ahead Don't get up. And please stop acting as if I were the queen mother. I'm sorry I didn't Outside mean... of a beehive, Margot, your behavior would hardly be considered either queenly or motherly. You're in a beehive, pal, didn't you know? We're all busy little bees, full of stings, making honey day and night. Aren't we, honey? Margot, really? Please don't play governess, Karen. I haven't your unyielding good taste. I wish I could have gone to Radcliffe, too, but Father wouldn't hear of it. He needed help behind a notions counter. I'm being rude now, aren't I? Or should I say, ain't I? You're maudlin and full of self-pity. You're magnificent. How about calling it a night? And you pose as a playwright. A situation pregnant with possibilities, and all you can think of is everybody go to sleep. It's a good thought. It won't play. As a non-professional, I think it's an excellent idea. Excuse me. Undramatic, perhaps, but practical. Happy little housewife. Cut it out. This is my house, not a theater. In my house, you're a guest, not a director. Then stop being a star. And stop treating your guests as your supporting cast. Now let's not get into a big hassle. It's about time we did. It's about time Margot realized that what's attractive on stage need not necessarily be attractive off. All right. 
I'm going to bed. You be host. It's your party. Happy birthday. Welcome home. And we who are about to die salute you. Need any help? To put me to bed. Take my clothes off. Hold my head. Tuck me in. Turn out the lights and tiptoe out. Eve would, wouldn't you, Eve? If you'd like. I wouldn't like. Yeah, she changes gears, you're right. Because that's I remember they say to her, you know, walk around like you're the queen mother. And then she goes off on her her busy little bees that were all busy little bees making honey day and night. Um, I mean, it's just it's just kind of wonderful to see it unfold. Because like you said, it is initially Thelma Ritter from from day one that that knows that uh, Ann Baxter's uh, Eve's character is is a problem. Um, and then it turns into her her best friend uh, who's uh, Celeste Home starting to realize it as it unfolds. And I think initially they just were, were sold on, on this Eve Harrington, this, this lonely, you know, poor girl who, who has nothing. And she has this great sob story in the beginning on how she got uh, to the theater and how she's seeing every single one of Margot's performances. And then, and all that you know, false sincerity yeah. and false humility yeah. and yeah, poor yeah. pitiful me, but she, she, she sells it. But you she mentioned Celeste it. though, what was going on behind the scenes where I see, keep seeing so much, shit talking about Celeste home and apparently Betty Davis was not a fan of, of her co-star in any way shape or form and I don't know if you do you know anything about it like apparently um all right, so co-star Celeste Holmes spoke about her experience yeah. with Betty Davis on the first day of shooting. She said, I walked into the set on the first day and said, good morning. And do you know her reply? She said, oh, shit, good manners. I never spoke to her again, yep. ever. But, so maybe, maybe, it was, maybe it was Betty Davis who was being a huge bitch. But, um, yeah, but that Betty, was the extent of what I knew is just the, the oh, shit, good manners thing. So I just feel that they just, were, just didn't like each other day one. If there's anything more, I do not know if there's more. It's very possible. Well, and years later in an interview, Betty Davis said that filming All About Eve was a very happy experience the only bitch in the cast was celeste home so that's oh. that, that, that's that's betty davis <laughs> throwing totally some daggers her. years yeah. after the fact yeah yeah um i mean uh in terms of uh just drama on the set i mean honestly this is when she meets her her third husband or fourth husband gary merrill um i think it's just her third or is i'm you know i don't know it could be her fourth um but uh anyways so the, clearly there's that that you can just tell when you're watching the movie that there really is something going on behind the scenes that they'd absolutely have a connection um, because they're just vibing off of each other the whole time. And there's, there's clearly that, well, what's the word? There's the, the magic is in the air. The love is in the air with the way they're both interacting with each other and, and offset. Um, well, there's all so kinds think, of drama. Zsa, Zsa Gabor apparently was pissed because her, she was married to George Sanders at the time. And when she heard yeah, that he yeah. uh, he was doing a scene with Marilyn Monroe, she had her own epic melt meltdown. I guess back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, if someone went away to make a movie or just went to Hollywood to make a movie, there was a good chance there was going to be some on-set romances of some kind. But, uh, you know, they're actors. They need, to, <laughs> they need to keep that passion going. But it seems like the biggest controversy behind the scenes was to what degree people want to believe or not believe that 
Betty Davis was modeling Margot on Tallulah Bankhead, and Tallulah Bankhead absolutely is convinced, and Betty Davis says, absolutely not, but where do you stand on this, uh, I mean, because obviously Tallulah Bankhead is a titanic hurricane personality in her own right, just as much as (laughs) Betty Davis, so uh, where where do you fall in this conflict? If I fell, I mean, just just looking at it from far away, I would say that Tallulah probably has more of a case because I feel like Betty definitely, you know, generally speaking, I mean, being so removed from it now or how many years ago that this this all's happening. Um, I feel like uh, Betty kind of just it's the it's the competitive nature that she had. I mean, honestly, I kind of feel that Tulula has more of a case. Yeah, I love and adore Tulula Bankhead, but I don't really know her career that well apart from uh, Lifeboat, which is really good. But obviously, there are all these incredible stories behind the scenes of like when she was at because obviously she came from this very well-to-do family that was involved in politics and how the Marx Brothers came to some event and they were telling Chico to behave and he said something like he said something really crude about what. He wanted to do to her sexually and she was like oh you like you old-fashioned boy or something like that but she was you know all those great like anecdotes about to what i were not wearing any underwear on the set of lifeboat and um when somebody brought it up to alfred hitchcock he said i don't know if that's for like hair and makeup or the like or the wardrobe <laughs> department or i can't remember the exact yeah. quote some people have to look it up but you know very larger than life personality but I think the the final laugh goes to Betty Davis because she got to play this remarkable part. And it really resurrected her career because in the mid-late 40s, she had started to slide a bit. Yeah. And her yeah. movies weren't as popular. And this is just one of those parts that actresses could wait 100 lifetimes and never find a role as good as this. I mean, this movie got 14 Oscar nominations. That's as many as Titanic and La La Land. And admittedly, I don't like Titanic and La La Land, but getting 14 nominations is a monumental seismic achievement and for a 42 year old actress at a time where 42 was like 72 for us now it completely revitalized betty davis but what what are you how do you feel about the oscars controversies because ann baxter some thought she should be nominated for best supporting not best actress and they believe that because she was in the best actress category she split the vote meaning that uh, what's her name? Uh, Judy Hol- Judy Holiday was going to win instead for Born Yesterday. Right. Um, honestly, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, that it should have been in terms of the supporting and best. I feel like it should have been Betty Davis as Margot Channing just as best actress, not both of them splitting the vote. I mean, if I had to look at it from far away. Um, but I mean, that's tough. I mean, because Ann Baxter does a wonderful job in that movie, too. And she has more screen time than than normally you, you give a, a supporting actress. Um I don't know. I mean, I, I'm kind of I might go with that. I might go with, you know, with with her getting the supporting actress as opposed to the best actress. Because that is correct. That that does split the vote. Um, you know, however, I mean, like, like I mentioned, there was also Sunset Boulevard that came out that year as well. So there's clearly a, a little more year. than yeah. just. Yeah. And with both stories being very, very similar in terms of, of aging stars, I can't come to terms with things. Um, so that that right there is also removing, I guess, how, how competitive uh, it could have been. So any favorite lines or gestures or moments where Betty Davis really cuts loose? Because obviously whether she's raising her glass oh, or yeah. eat, or biting the onions like at the table as like a way of or kind of toasting. Celery, yeah. Or the, sorry, yeah. yeah, the celery as a way of celery. kind of, it's like her 
like her fuck you to, to George Sanders. I this, use that gif so often online. People. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely incredible. But I love how they have this, like Betty Davis, when she's enemies with somebody, it's not like she yeah. ignores them or stops talking to them. Oh, no. Like when she sees Eve at that party at the end, she's like, oh, well, you can put that like award right in the place where your heart's supposed to be. And she, she's <laughs> totally unafraid just to rip people a new one. I mean, you know, there's the, the fasten your seatbelts iconic line. But I think for me, it's pro- I think it's more at the party when uh, she's sitting at the piano and uh, Gary Merrill comes over to her and, and says, uh, the guests would like to know where they laid out the body. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and she's like, it, you know, it hasn't been laid out yet. Like, and she's like all like kind of depressed looking down at her glass and the whole thing. That might be one of my favorite scenes. Uh, favorite lines. Gosh, there's just so I many. I think mine has to be from, at least from her, I detest cheap sentiment. And I feel like that that line is appropriate for any era, for any medium. Cheap sentiment is, yeah. I mean, the only thing worse than cheap sentiment is like being pretentious and self-important. But cheap sentiment, I can't even say the word, sentiment (laughs) is as loathsome as it gets. Yeah. um, And honestly, I think one of the favorite things I love that she does in that movie is when she's walking in the theater all angrily and she's got her her mink coat and she kind of makes sure that the coat goes completely over the face of Max Fabian. Uh, It's the Gregory Radoff as she's marching to the stage i mean there's more like little like gestures and things that she does um especially when she's angry and pissed off that that really kind of uh just makes me just like hysterical watching it because she just adds so much more to it well this is not a line by her but it's a line about her at the beginning when addison dewitt is describing her and he says margot channing is a star of the theater she made her first stage appearance at the age of four in midsummer night's dream she played a fairy and entered quite unexpectedly stark naked she's been a star ever since margot <laughs> is a great star a true star she never was or will be anything less or anything else and, like that just sums her up so perfectly like, she's watching eve and just staring daggers at her receives some award but right away you know where margot stands She's been a star her entire life, and she'll be a star until the day she dies. She's, as Edison says later on, like you're maudlin and full of self pity. You're magnificent. Like she just, she's got all the wonderful <laughs> qualities that you want an actress to have. Yeah, and I think that's you know the the kind of like uh, with uh, Gloria as Norma Norma Desmond, it's kind of a similar thing with with Betty Davis playing Margot Channing. I mean, she was what 41, I think, her early 40s when she's in this. Yep. Um, and I know people just just aged so much faster than with well, all they were the smoking. smoking and drinking fucking yeah. vodka all day. So yeah, if you <laughs> exactly. drink like a bottle of vodka a day and chain smoke three packs, yeah, you're going to look like you're 70 when you're 40. Like I'm 43, yeah. but I feel like, uh, at least I hope I, I, I don't look like I'm 73, but I, I try to take uh, so, so, some care of myself. But yeah. that's a big part of this movie though, is that her age gap between her and her yes. boyfriend, she's eight years older than her boyfriend. And of course he's yes. in love with her. He's obsessed with her, but she knows that the older they get the more they she will feel that gap and it'll feel greater sure. as time goes by but it just shows like it's yet another thing that's fueling her just rabid hatred of eve's that you have like the, the girl who's half her age coming in and trying to take everything she has yeah so i just feel that that you know just the reality of where she is currently you know in her career and her life is just also just reflects so well too in this character um just even the the you know obviously the the, the difficulties in terms of um and just i guess her that her character and the kind of the way that she is and just the personality that she is um just I mean, Margot Channing, I mean, they were thinking of, of having, I think, I think Zanuck favored uh, Barbara Stanwyck at one point and she couldn't do it. Um, 
Another one I think was Joan Crawford. Um, they, I think, said no to Marlena Dietrich because she was too young. I mean, there was a lot of uh, other big names at the time that they were considering. I can't yeah. imagine another actress in the part. I yeah, know I, all I those actresses either. you just mentioned, they're, they're incredible actresses. They're really, yeah. really good. But it's so it's, utterly, completely Betty hard. Davis's part yeah. that if anyone else were to play it, it would fundamentally change the movie. So I, I can't even yeah. be, I can't even begin to play like this hypothetical games. This is Betty right. Davis's movie all the way. But George Sanders, he definitely gives her a run for uh, her money. Well, he has all these great. I mean, when it comes to great dialogue, Joseph L. Mankiewicz mm. really whipped out like all the talent that he ever had and gave it to him in this moment. Like when he's <laughs> he kind of, he's basically caught on E for all like all of her bullshit and all of her secrets and all of her lies. That $500 brought you straight to New York, didn't it? She was a liar. She was a liar. Answer my question. Weren't you paid to get out of town? <laughs> there was no Eddie, no pilot. You've never been married. That was not only a lie, it was an insult to dead heroes and the women who loved them. San Francisco has no Schubert Theater. You've never been to San Francisco. That was a stupid lie, easy to expose, not worthy of you. I had to get in to meet Margot. I had to say something, be somebody, make her like me! And she did like you. She helped and trusted you. You paid her back by trying to take Bill away. That's not true! I was there. I saw you and heard you through the dressing room door. You used my name and column to blackmail Karen into getting you the part of Cora, and you lied to me about it. No, no, no! I had lunch with Karen not three hours ago, as always with women who try to find out things she told more than she learnt. <laughs> now, do you want to change your story about Lloyd beating at your door the other night? Please, please. <laughs> that I should want you at all suddenly strikes me as the height of improbability. But that in itself is probably the reason. You're an improbable person, Eve, and so am I. We have that in common. Also, a contempt for humanity, an inability to love and be loved, insatiable ambition and talent. We deserve each other. I mean, this is... Yeah, as that's why good, there are people at the theater. Yeah, this yeah. is as good as Hollywood screenwriting gets. Yeah, it is. Um, it just, I mean, there's... there's so much to say about the dialogue. I mean, so many, that's why it's so hard for me when you're like, oh, what's a, you know, what's a favorite uh, line you have in the movie? It's like, it's like from who? I mean, everybody's character was just handled in such a way that I feel like today is just, is or just in general, is it can't, has to be ridiculously dick, like just very hard to do. Just the layer of, of every single individual character, the actual dialogue that they have, how they differentiate from each other. And then just that that total chemistry that just exists. And honestly, it's because a lot of them just didn't like each other. Uh, so I think, you know, as the, as the movie unfolds and you go from it being Ann Baxter to then the end where now Ann Baxter is encountering uh, the same type of situation yep. that, uh, that Margot did in the beginning of the movie and just kind of shows that Hollywood or the theater is this this cycle where it's just constantly replacing people, you know, over and over again, that machine element of it, you know, regardless yeah, of talent. and showbiz. It's, yeah. The, the young eat the old and replace them. And it's hard to, to hang in there. But there's a great line that I feel like William Wyler would appreciate it, where at one point the character Lloyd Richards is pissed off on Margot and he says, I shall never understand the weird process but which a body with a voice suddenly fancies itself as a mind. Just when exactly does an actress decide they're her words she's saying and her thoughts she's expressing? And Margot replies, yeah. usually at the point where she has to rewrite and rethink them to keep the audience from leaving the theater. Like That seems right. like a line that Betty Davis could have said herself 
herself to any number of directors that she worked with. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, I love that there's that sense of morality with it. And you know, the, the fact that, you know, everybody does get old and then just generally how, how Hollywood handles it or just how anybody handles it. Um, and you mentioned that age gap so that that's something that's really going to come into play and is very real. And it's something that's very relatable. I think more so with Margot than it is even with Norma. If you wanted to discuss that other movie that came out the same year and you wanted to compare the characters. Well, Norma at that point, she's totally, she's completely totally gone, gone yeah. and dead in the yeah. water. And so, but she's like in self-imposed isolation. Yeah living in a yeah. total dreamland and so uh yeah whereas Margot's still trading body blows and fighting the good fight and acting like you know in shows 365 yeah. days a year basically hasn't taken a break her entire life and now right. like the one point where she actually shows like some grace and poise she's like you know what yes. Cora's too young for me I'm just gonna let Cora go to another actress I'm gonna let it go and I'm just yeah. gonna enjoy being a wife for a while and she actually finds some measure of happiness as a result where you know Eve is going to live a life of complete emptiness (laughs) moving forward right until Phoebe walks in the door at the end yeah so um, I, I just find that 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 this movie, it, there's even more life because of, of that that background uh, just discussion that it has and, and it, what these characters are facing, because it's just something that is relatable. And honestly, this movie, I mean, you know, even though it didn't win a few different awards and whatnot, I mean, ultimately, I and mean, that's a constant conversation. It's just, you know, how does how does time you know, what does time do to these movies? And then how are they, you know, how many years later now? Yeah, this one, 70 years later. Yeah, it's, Very it's, a, well. it's a little, it shines a little brighter with each passing year. And yeah. when people talk about like, well, how can you spend so much time like watching old movies? Movies like All About Eve or what get people hooked on old, yes. on old movies because yes. they quite literally do not make movies like this anymore where you have like six or seven brilliant roles, so many incredible characters, exquisite dialogue, and it's not even really shot in like a, like a, a like a show offy fashion in any way, shape, or form. It's, not. it's just no. great lines, great characters, a, a great story simply told, and it just you, you can't take your eyes. Once you start watching it, if you if you get thirty seconds into it, you're watching the whole goddamn thing. Oh, yeah. That, that's happened to me several times. I just, you know, sometimes I have TCM on and it's, it's the beginning of All About Evil. I guess I know what I'm doing for the rest of the night. It's just, it's just something that just, just captures you and, and just won't let you go. And, and and like I mentioned early on, it just with every time I rewatch this, there's something new to catch. I mean, it's just continue. It just has so much life in it. Sister, sister, oh, so fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene, an Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers, the insistent call of a buzzer better left unanswered, a telephone that has become an object of fear, a supper tray that will not be touched, a window barred against the world, a hammer, a mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Joan Crawford is Blanche Hudson. But we must warn you, 
If you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, this motion picture is quite unlike anything they have ever done. It is a bold essay in the art of the macabre, a venture to the ultimate reaches of terror. A motion picture definitely not for the squeamish. And we beg you, as the tension builds to the screaming point, as shock after shock assaults your senses, try to remember that this is only a motion picture. Try and remember. Get away from me! No, we, uh, we can't show you anymore. Only when you see whatever happened to baby Jane will you know. And the answer is total suspense. Alrighty, well, let's move into the final stage of this episode where we're going to talk about a wild production on screen and off screen. This is, movie was a monster hit with very little money, but the story behind the scenes is just as crazy as the story itself. So let's maybe first talk about the movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and then we can talk about just how fucking crazy it was behind the scenes. Sure. So what is the story of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Okay, so it's kind of touches a little bit on, um, you know, other demented, uh, sad uh, stories of, of famous people that are, are now forgotten, and they're in their kind of decrepit, nightmarish mansion just kind of existing, you know, somewhere in Hollywood. Um, and it's the story of a baby Jane Hudson uh, well-known uh, at the time, vaudevillian child star. And that's that's played by Betty Davis. And then kind of in the 30s, um, her sister, Joan Crawford, uh, his character, uh, I think her name is Blanche, uh, that kind of reversed on them with the success. Her sister ended up becoming very famous uh, as an actress. And so, you know, Betty Davis is kind of, you know, forgotten you know as, as it is with with Hollywood and uh, so then now they're both living in this home together where one of them uh, no longer uh, can use her legs with an accident that happens and there's a nice little twist to that accident um, and uh, Betty Davis's character who still cannot face that she's no longer a little girl that's famous is is taking care of her her sister Joan Crawford uh, who is handicapped and they're in this nightmarish mansion together and, and Joan Crawford's character is entire, entirely reliant on her her broken sad demented sister to take care of her so you kind <laughs> She's of got a see. massive alcohol problem and yeah. basically looks like it, she hasn't washed her face in maybe a decade but instead just applies a new layer of makeup every morning when she wakes up yeah and in this movie it's just it exists almost entirely in that house and and just the way that it's done i mean it, it's it reminds you of i mean gosh it reminds me of of popular movies like psycho or, or, or repulsion even, it really reminds me of repulsion, repulsion. because yeah. like the way Catherine Deneuve's character is living and kind of retreating increasingly right. inward and can't handle the outside world. You see a very similar thing with baby Jane where she gets increasingly lost into this little girl persona that she's trying to recapture almost to the point where she can no longer even deal with the reality outside and can only react with hammers and, and violence and sadistic behavior. It just gets crazier as the movie goes on, what she ends up doing. Um, and then, you know, at the very end of the movie, you learn that, you know, maybe, you know, as, as villainous and as awful as Betty Davis was, uh, her character, Joan Crawford's was, was equally as, as demented. Um, 
so it's kind of kind of basically making uh, Betty believe that she did certain things that, that kind of I mean, I guess I can spoil it. It came out in 62. Um, you know, so there's a scene in the middle of the movie or kind of towards the beginning ish that that shows you how Joan Crawford uh, lost the use of her legs. Um, and it's implied throughout the whole movie that, you know, Betty Davis, you know, just out of pure jealousy with no longer being famous, smashed into her with a car and destroyed the use of her legs. And then towards the end. You, uh, you know, as as uh, Joan Crawford is, you know, confessing as she's dying on a beach from starvation from what Betty Davis just not feeding her for a long time. Uh, she, she brings her an ice cream cone or tries to toward the end. <laughs> strawberry ice cream. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, just basically uh, confesses. Oh, you know what? You were really drunk that night. And it was actually me trying to get you. You didn't do anything. I broke my legs in the car and then I just made it look like you did it. So it's kind of it was like. The first time I saw it and I saw that the way that she confessed that at the end, you know, it was like just kind of, you know, throws a whole other perspective on the two of them. And, and you know, the, that they're both these people that are. Well, the first time you see jealousy. this movie, you just you spend the entire movie like in white knuckle terror about what's going to happen to Joan Crawford's character. She's being tied up and deprived yeah. of water, deprived of food or just tormented with like dead animals and whatever the case might be. But then you watch it a second time like, oh, well, she's actually getting some much deserved payback because she essentially drove her sister mad with grief and guilt by yes. laying the blame on her and it totally derailed her life and so Destroyed she's her. now yeah. in the clutches of this monster that she played a large role in creating she created her yeah and so that's it's so much more rewarding the second time around but god there's something really special about seeing two actresses who were as big as actresses could be in the golden age showing in the early 60s when you know hollywood is unkind to people who with a little age on them Oh, yeah. Showing that they can still hang hang in there because Joan Crawford in the early 30s was one of the highest paid people in the world. She was one of the most beautiful women who ever lived. I mean, you watch her in like things like Grand Hotel. You're like, oh my god, like can I can I even watch this movie? Like she's too hot to even like watch. Like she's just <laughs> she's too strikingly beautiful, and she's as glamorous as any actress who ever lived. But now she's a a, a little old lady who can't use her legs, and Betty Davis is just decided to turn into this nightmarish monster character. And yeah, I mean, watching this movie yesterday, the day before I was like, all right, Betty Davis is maybe one of my favorite actresses now. Like I always knew she was great and always knew she was a legend and always knew she was an icon, but I never really appreciated just how brilliant and fearless and courageous she is and just how like specific and impactful her instincts as an actress are from like her body language to the way she uses her eyes, whether she's mm-hmm. mocking her sister or recoiling in horror from cops asking her questions. Obviously both actresses do a great job, but this is once again, Betty Davis taking like the role of a lifetime and then just like yeah. making it even better. Yeah. Well, in fairness too to Davis, she had the more fun part. I mean, she's getting to, to serve her sister, like her pet bird, like on a plate which always has upset me because I've always had birds. Um, gotcha. So that was just, yeah. So, and then, uh, and it turns into a, you know, a rat and, you know, I haven't eaten meals in weeks to, to now we're, we're tying her to the bed and have tape on her mouth so she can't yell. I mean, so it's kind of, it's just, it's incredible what Betty Davis does. She just totally embraces this, this villainous, um, difficult character. And then she breaks out into song, you know, it breaks out into, I've written a letter to daddy, which was her huge, her huge hit and what made her famous. Gosh, I mean, like, 
how many years ago at this point like this character was, yeah because the movie takes yeah. place in the teens and the 30s yeah. and then in the 60s she's in vaudeville yeah so and then she's got that, that huge doll that she used to sell after all of her shows that's just kind of in the house with them that she introduces to friends and it's just kind of you know while while joan crawford's locked in her room upstairs you know starving so it's well, kind I love of how she'll like go around town like buying <laughs> booze or trying to like yeah. go to the bank and she'll get herself all dolled up and she's like well, Do you don't you don't you recognize me or don't you know who i am like i'm baby jane they're all like who the hell is baby jane <laughs> like, right. that's another reality of showbiz is that that's most so people wonderful. don't give a fuck about old movies old shows whatever and they have very short memories but yeah. i think a big part of this movie is Robert Aldrich, who sometimes I think it's kind of overlooked, and that's just as natural as a turning of the earth that directors get forgotten and they fade into the ashes of time. But Robert Aldrich is one of those directors who was able to reinvent himself and keep cranking out great work in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he had very little money to work. I think he had $750,000 to work with on this. And he was basically editing in the camera as he went because he, I think he, from the moment they stopped shooting, he finished the movie like 10 days later because they had a really uh, quick uh, turnaround to release mm-hmm. it. But the mm-hmm. movie was wildly successful. I think like two weeks into the release, it was already considered a profitable movie. But this is one of the movies that really helped put him back on firm footing so that he could do things like Hush Hush, Sweet, Char- Sweet Charlotte, or The Dirty Dozen, which is one of the biggest right. hits of the 1960s. Longest Yard. Yep. Yeah, Longest Yard. But like in the 50s, he was doing killer <laughs> stuff like Apache and Vera Cruz and Kiss Me Deadly, one Kiss of the best deadly. film noir yep. ever made. Yep. So I, I love Robert Aldrich, but for whatever reason, um, I guess because he's not regarded as like an auteur, but goddamn, he's sure as fuck consistent. Like he has, so, he has so many good movies right. from the mid fifties to the mid seventies, and I think this is by far one of his strongest. But when you watch it, it's not like there's a lot of like great action scenes. It's just it's great photography no. and great cutting and just great tension and great suspense. But it, it's masterfully directed. It just shows like when you get a great director in there, they can give you champagne for the price of beer. And it sounds like Betty Davis also recognized that uh, she finally had another great collaborator to work with, like William Wyler, like some of the directors that she'd worked with in the past. Yeah, I mean, I know um, for for this movie, uh, Betty Davis did create her own makeup for the role of Baby Jane. So she was kind of, I mean, she always was very, very involved with the, with the movies that she was in, sometimes arguably too much. Um, but she did kind of take it to that level her own grotesque makeup and I thought that that kind of really said something to how much she was embracing this character um, because she clearly knew where to take it well also like Joan Crawford kept wanting to like put on nail polish or wear fake boobs whatever she kept wanting to be young and beautiful again which is the she's no she's been sitting in a wheelchair for 20 years like she's not she's not going to be young and beautiful but I know that Robert Aldrich (laughs) had to really fight with Joan Crawford about how she was going to be portrayed on the screen because she was really protective of her image and and Betty Davis had some really funny line about um, at the, toward the end when uh, Joan Crawford is lying on her back and about how uh, she was wearing. Oh, yeah. It's called uh, according to Betty Davis, Joan Crawford refused to dispose of her falsies. And the quote is, yes. as part of her wardrobe, Miss Crawford owned three sizes of bosoms. In the famous scene in which she lay on the beach, Joan wore the largest ones. Let's face it. When a woman lies on her back, I don't care how well endowed she is, her bosoms do not stand straight up. And Blanche has supposedly wasted away for 20 years. The scene called for me to fall on top of her. I had the breath almost knocked out of me. It was like falling on two footballs. Like it makes it sound like Betty Davis was so much goddamn fun to hang out with and talk to behind the scenes. Yeah. She's just like a yeah. total, a total character. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, you have to have, you had to have a really, I think, thick skin in order to constantly, you know, get, get stuff from her, get feedback from her because she just told you how it was and what she felt like, you know, 24 seven. I mean, I know she said, um, I don't know who she said this to, but it was during the making of this movie that she said that she would piss on Joan if she was ever on fire. <laughs> I mean, so she, <laughs> so, so, and she said that Joan was, I, it must've been around this time. Uh, Hollywood's first case of syphilis was Joan Crawford. I mean, so she, wow. <laughs> there was, yeah, she just took it to levels that I, clearly, clearly she's just poking and prying, trying to get something from, well, that's from Joan. Also, but it's also part of the movie. Like when yeah. Joan is hearing that people have been watching her movie, she's like, really? Did she like it? And then Betty Davis looks at her and kind of bats her eyes and mocking fashion goes, really? Did she like it? And of course, that's the one bit that Betty Davis actually doesn't do. Anytime she's imitating her sister she's dubbed because apparently Betty Davis just couldn't quite nail the Joan Crawford impersonation but it almost lends the movie this really eerie quality that she has this like magical power to imitate her sister perfectly (laughs) whenever she needs to but apparently that mocking kind of condescension toward Joan Crawford extended to behind the scenes frequently because Joan Crawford was trying to win over the the affection of the cast and crew and kept sending little gifts and notes to everybody so finally, Betty Davis in her note and it said, get off the crap. Which I, I, she just cut right to the heart of it. She, there's just no pretense or bullshit. So once again, I'm sure when you're on the receiving end, it's fucking hellacious. But as an yes. observer, it's funny as fucking shit. You're seeing how Betty Davis would just abuse people. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was definitely something she did on a regular basis. Um, I know um, that uh, Betty, uh, gosh, I think... She said, I, I have one more that I remember. She said, uh, the best time I had with Joan was when I pushed her down the stairs in Baby Jane. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're back to, to her her dislike of, of Crawford, which, I mean, honestly, it's just they were both both huge icons from the same era. So, of course, there's going to be that, that, that competitive side as well. So, that just they never let go. But it's so cool how this movie includes little clips from their movies. And I think uh, the Betty Davis clip is from a movie called Parachute Jumper, where she has this horrible southern accent. But it's obviously before Betty yeah. Davis became a huge star. And the Joan Crawford scene is from 1934, Sadie McKee. Sadie McKee. Or Sadie yeah. McKee. I've never seen that one. But it's for fan, for fans of film history to see two giant icons playing these roles where you're kind of sort of taking advantage of their own history. Like other examples that would be like Gloria Swanson's character in Sunset Boulevard where they're showing scenes from Queen Kelly, which is actually a scene, a movie that she did with Eric von Stroheim. Or like when you see like um, The Shootist, when at the beginning they're showing scenes from all the films that John Wayne appeared in, like Rio Bravo and things like that. I I love movies where an actor is playing kind of thinly disguised version of themselves, but then they they fall back on all these great clips from their history. So I feel like this movie just operates on a bunch of different levels. It's just a love song to film history, but it just, it really works well just as this, like, do you call it like a melodrama or a horror movie or what is the the genre in which this story kind of unfolds? I think, honestly, I think it belongs more in in, in psychological horror. Maybe I might throw it in, but I'm afraid some people might associate the wrong movies with it and then get disappointed. I mean, if you just, but I think that's where it belongs. Maybe even psychological thriller, if you don't want to, to, I guess, misinterpret what it is. But I mean, if there's these two women that are trapped in a house and they're, they're arguably both monsters, they're, you know, one of them at this point is a victim to that monster she created and they're, she's just stuck there. I mean, that's, that's definitely a horror movie to me. Yeah. And she, (laughs) like she murders the housekeeper with a hammer. I mean, she, yeah, yeah. It, I think it, it's funnier than Repulsion, 
but right. it belongs in that same category, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also really moving and tragic. Like the scene where she's singing the song, um, I wrote a letter to daddy. There's a great anecdote yes. about the, the, the way they were shooting that scene. Ernie, the uh, cameraman, Ernest Holler, he had a highlight straight down, which is always bad for a woman, especially me. When Jane finally gets up to the mirror, she sees herself as this decrepit old hag when in her mind she's still young. I covered my face with my hands. Robert Altrich had wanted me had wanted a loud scream, but what came out was a hoarse cry. I've been having laryngitis. Yes. But it was, it was right, and we both knew it. Aldrich had tears in his eyes. You just won yourself an Oscar, he whispered. I went home that night singing, and the angels sang. Obviously, she only got nominated. She didn't win. But still, like right. it just sounds like... Uh, once again, she and Aldrich were just perfect collaborators, and they were really mm-hmm. getting the best out of both of each other. Because obviously, directors can't do shit without great actors, but great actors can't do shit without great directors. Like it's a symbiotic relationship. So thank goodness that the yes. two of them found each other. And but I'm embarrassed to admit I have not yet seen the follow-up film, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. I've only seen the trailer. Do you have any thoughts on uh, on the on the follow up film? Because I knew it was like that also was just a giant massive hit, and once again, yes. it's kind of playing in that deranged psychological hag horror genre. And I think also horror wise, I I just remember it being I just remember the the one that came after this one um, a little more so than Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. It was the Nanny, I think, is what it was called. I don't know if you ever saw that one. I've just- not no. Yeah, um, even like I barely remember Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte to be honest. I just remember. Uh, Joan Crawford saying that uh, she uh, she was just upset with Betty over Baby Jane saying that she acted like it was just her one woman show. They nominated her and she let her hog all the glory because they were both in this movie too together. Um, and it would have been nice if she was nicer to me in interviews and gave more credit because of how much I did for her. So I, there, there was clearly still the kind of that, obviously. I mean, it's not going to go away with that. Well, it seems like a little situation where like art imitating yeah. life or life imitating art where Joan's constantly getting yeah. her feelings hurt and Betty's constantly abusing her. But maybe yeah. Betty saw through Joan's kind of poor pitiful me routine right. and realized, you know what? You're an ambitious throat cutting bitch just like I am. Like yeah. come off it. Stop trying to act like all innocent and sweet, etc. So I, I, I like how candid and frank Betty Davis was. Yeah, absolutely. And that that nanny uh, movie, which is not as good as as um, Baby Jane, uh, honestly, Betty just takes it to even on a whole other level in terms of playing this villainous, like scary, psychological horror, if you want to call it that type of character, which kind of just amazes me. I mean, I know now she's, you know, how much older she is and, and just kind of those characters have evolved for her, which I mean, really, I feel like only people that really fully understand and love what they are doing are willing to kind of make that leap. Like you mentioned uh, Joan Crawford kind of always wanting to appear beautiful and, and, you know, kind of not embrace, you know, the fact that that time does exist and we all get older and Betty just, you know, as these, she's into these horror movies now, she just, she just goes for it. And she's kind of totally embraces that she's this, this crazy recluse or this, this nightmarish person. And, and just, like I said, just totally just runs away with it. And I feel a lot of them are are just kind of unable to do that. But also a lot of the Hollywood movie stars in the thirties and forties, by the time the sixties and seventies rolled around, they were getting a little long in the tooth. Like you look at Cary Grant, he was still doing things like like charade in the sixties. But the late 60s, early 70s were not necessarily that kind to the the fading, aging icons from that earlier era. So I think she's one of the few exceptions where she was able to stay in business for far longer. Like you don't, 
I mean, I'm trying to think of like the big ones. It seems like a lot of them were just so unhealthy. They died really young. Like Clark Gable didn't live that long. Gary Cooper yeah. didn't live that long. Marilyn Monroe yeah. didn't live that long. Bogey certainly didn't live that long. So yeah, they just, they all lived hard. <laughs> a lot of yeah, them just, they did. A lot of them just died out. But Betty Davis at least got to live to a ripe old age. She lived to be 81. And so that allowed her to have a, uh, a longer career than a lot of her, uh, a lot of her peers from the thirties yeah. and forties. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of which, um, I know one of the last movies she did. I know her last one is Wicked Stepmother. One of the, I feel like it might have been the one before that was Wales of August, um, which is opposite Lillian Gish. Nice. And which is kind of just is amazing to me when I watch that. Yeah, just considering who Lillian Gish is and who she was. Um, yeah, she's in but that one is, Birth of a know, Nation in 1915. I mean, she had been around <laughs> a long, a long ass time. <laughs> A long time. She's, she's equally as as important to to the movies and, and and everything that she's done for it. And just kind of to see them opposite each other is wonderful in that because, you know, they're she's the blind sister, I believe, Betty of Lillian Gish, if I'm remembering that right. Um, and she was not in, in a good place at the time. That might have been. It's right around, I think, when she had her stroke, Betty Davis. Um, and she recovered from that. And then I think that's when she learned she had, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that movie is wonderful too, because it's these two legends on screen together. I mean, I know it was a little bit of a hard sell, these two old women in a house taking care of each other, but I mean, it's Lillian Gish and Betty Davis and the whales of August and it's, they're both playing people. I mean, at least Betty, a character that honestly, I don't think she really played all that much of at, at the time. So she's kind of totally removing herself again from those horror films that she was doing in the sixties and seventies. Well, uh, any, before we wrap up any sure. games that you want to push or recommend or anything like that, or any shows or movies that are going on right now, like anything else that you're consuming in your media diet? Um, I'm consuming my media diet right now is a weird one. I'm, uh, well, I learned recently, and I feel like maybe you saw me tweet this, that the Warner Brothers DVDs from 2006 to 2009 are just kind of dying on people. Uh, apparently, it had to do with the uh, the quality check or the lack thereof. So I'm kind of just slowly going by Warner Brothers DVDs and making sure they all work. Um, so I've been rewatching, aside from all of the Betty Davis uh, movies, a lot of uh, the Warner Gangster movies. Um, I rewatched, uh, besides the Petrified Forest, I rewatched White Heat, uh, Little Caesar, Public Enemy, uh, Angels with Dirty Faces, Roaring Twenties. So I've kind of been really exploring a lot of early Warner Brothers and rewatching all of those right now. Um, in terms of, oh yeah, so if you have DVDs from that era, definitely this now's the time to rewatch them because my, the ones I've discovered that uh, do not work have no signs of disc rot or anything, and uh, it's kind of kind of a bad thing there so um well if you ever want to come back on wrong reel and talk about any of those filmmakers like raul walsh or any of those people like yeah there's so many kick-ass filmmakers and i mean if you want to ever do like a james cagney episode or a barbara stanwick episode or whatever like i just like you and brian Sarr and like charlie craven there are a couple of people out there who really like talking about 20s 30s and 40s but they're not a lot of yeah. them so i just can't thank you enough for pitching this cool topic because betty davis obviously one of the all-time greats and uh, was long overdue shining a spotlight on her fucking unbelievable careers. I feel like the golden age was filled with so many icons, but she deserves to be mentioned in the same breath with any of them. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, obviously top 10 all time. I would, if I had to discuss, you know, all of the, the actors and actresses that came out of Hollywood, uh, especially the golden age, she's absolutely on that list. Um, just for, for what we discussed, the, just the body of work that she has and the range of characters that she played, um, and all of the people that she's worked with era she's an entire she kind of embraces who she is and what the era is and she's willing to to take kind of 
you know, the, honestly, it's it's courage and and try new things and be different and even be scary or ugly or violent on screen, which a lot of women at the time didn't do. Well, where can people find you online if they want to talk more about the golden age or hag horror or glamorous Southern <laughs> Belle movies or whatever the case might be? Um, social media, I'm on uh, Twitter at WMassLiberty. I'm on there 24-7. Once again, just can't thank you enough for pitching this really cool topic. We'd love to have you oh, back anytime. And at some point, we'll have to do a pre-code part three, which is uh, and also oh, maybe I'm, even some silent movies because we did the Louis Brooks. I'd be a fan of that, yeah. But I, I, yeah, very, I love her. Yeah, far too, uh, I far too rarely do silent films, and I feel like there's a lot of neglected classics on that front. But we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down the Betty Davis flicks. If you want to talk more, you can always find me on Twitter at Colbrad. Or if you want some video content, you can find my shiny bald head ranting about TV and film on YouTube at Geeking with James Hancock. But if you've been enjoying this podcast for a while, please consider leaving us a rating review that helps us a ton on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. But thanks again for listening. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.